Financial decisions are spiritual decisions. Financial decisions are spiritual decisions. Just think about it. There are probably some old purchases that you made back in the day that at the time you really, really, really wanted that thing, whatever it is. Might have been an, it might have been a new piece of technology, might have been a, an article of clothing, it might have been a haircut or whatever it was that you paid for. There was something that you really, really wanted at the time, but now it's long gone. It, uh, I've, on the screen behind me, there's a couple of examples. You know, it may have, it may have been a, a PlayStation, right? A PlayStation 1, remember those? Like back in the day, it was really cool and you really wanted one. Maybe it was one of those Razer flip phones. I remember when I got my Razer flip phone. I remember how bad I wanted that thing. And I even had one of those like belt clip things on my belt where I could wear it on the outside. Oh, to be honest, the only reason I did that is so people could see, yeah, I got a Razer. I was like 15 years old walking around like, yeah, look at that, right? Or, you know, maybe it was the, the ladies, you know, the shoulder pads with the perm. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. My mom rocked the shoulder pads in the perm back in the 80s. I remember she's got a fantastic picture. I love you, mom, if you're listening. What about the frosted tips? Anybody remember the frosted tips phase? Most of the guys in here are probably either too young or too old to remember the frosted tips. That was my, that was my phase. Or there was the bleach blonde yellow hair. You know, I went through a bit of an M&M um, phase uh, back before I knew the Lord. <laughs> Um, where I wanted to look like Eminem, and so I actually dyed, I tried at one point to dye my hair like yellow, and it was a disaster, to be quite honest with you, because I don't remember what happened, it didn't turn out yellow, it came, it turned out something else. But you know what's funny is that, like for example, that Razor flip phone, I remember how badly I wanted that thing, and I remember how excited I was when I got it, and then wasn't 12 or 18 months later when the next phone came out, and all of a sudden that Razor flip phone got thrown into a drawer somewhere, and then, you know, a few months, maybe a year down the road, spring cleaning happens, and that thing gets chunked in the garbage. And that Razor flip phone, it's in a landfill somewhere now, right? Think about that. Why is that? Why is it that, that we, there's things that we want so bad, and, and, and we're willing to sacrifice to, to buy these things that we feel like, I've got to have this thing, and then within two years, we value that, that, that thing so uh, small that we just throw it away. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that we're not really paying for stuff. We're not, you're not buying a phone when you bought that razor. You're not paying for a haircut when you got that perm and those shoulder pads. What are you buying? You're buying a feeling. You're buying a feeling. You're, you're, you're paying for the feeling that those things give you. Uh, some stuff we, we pay for because it gives us security. Some stuff we pay for because it gives us comfort. Some stuff we pay for because it gives us uh, respect or status like my Razor phone did. I, I was cool. Some stuff we pay for because it, it, it helps our self-esteem and body image. You know, like the, like the shoulder pads and the perm, Right? We're paying for the feeling that those things give us. That's what I mean when I say that financial decisions are spiritual decisions because ultimately we're paying for and depending upon stuff to give us what God is supposed to give us. God is supposed to give us comfort. God is supposed to bring us security. God is supposed to give us pleasure and he wants to and he promises to, but we pay for things 
to bring us that stuff, to bring us that feeling instead. And, and you know what we have to do? Like eventually, whatever thing we thought would be the thing, it, it ends up wearing off, it gets old, it doesn't work anymore, it breaks down, it loses its luster, and we have to go buy another thing, and another thing, and another thing. And it's not just stuff, it could be relationships, right? It could be a goal in your life. It doesn't have to just be stuff. Last week, we talked about what Jesus has to say about our prayer life, about our devotional life, how to pray Jesus' way. That's what we talked about last week. And um, we, we, we learned that um, there's a type of praying that you can do that is not pleasing to God, right? You can pray for the wrong reasons. You can pray because you want to be noticed by other people and you want other people to see you and, and go, oh man, that's a really holy person right there, wow. And you can also pray to try to impress God, thinking if I just pray enough, then, then maybe God will see me and, and he'll, he'll see how devoted I am and then he'll be pleased with me. And we learned that both of those motivations are, are wrong motivations to pray. And then we learned the week before, in cha- well, the two weeks before in chapter 5, how Jesus said you can even obey the law for the wrong reasons. Like you can obey all of God's rules and completely miss the point, right? You can, you know, not murder somebody. Congratulations, 99.9% of the population doesn't do that. But Jesus says if you're angry with somebody, you've already committed murder in your heart. And this week, we're going to see that not only does Jesus care about the reasons behind why we obey the law and the reasons behind uh, why we pray, not only does he care about our devotional life, he cares about our, the rest of our life, our material life. Jesus wants to be Lord over your Mondays, not just your Sundays. He doesn't just want to be Lord over your prayer, he wants to be Lord over your pockets and what's in them. Did you know the average person makes 35,000 choices a day? 35,000 choices a day. That's crazy. But think about it. You're always making choices. Right now, you're making a choice of whether or not I'm going to listen to this guy standing up front or whether I'm going to check out and start daydreaming about what I'm going to do after church. You're making choices about whether or not you're going to believe what the Bible says right now. We're always making choices constantly. Some of those choices are are really big choices. You know, like, who am I going to marry or or what am am I going to major in in university? And then some of those choices are like, do I want a cheeseburger or a hot dog? They're, they're relatively inconsequential. So some of those choices have an impact and, and hold consequences now in this life. And some of those choices have consequences for all of eternity. In the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus gives us three choices. Three choices that Jesus gives us uh, when it comes to material possessions that can make or break not just your life here, but your eternity. They're important choices. These aren't, this isn't cheeseburger or hot dog, okay? This is big time choices. These are extremely important choices. And so we're going we're gonna to look at what those choices are. And obviously there's one choice, good, good, good choice and one not so good choice. And don't worry, I'm going to tell you which one's the good one. And which one's the not so good one? And Jesus is going to as well in this passage. So we're going to go ahead and jump into it. It's going to be Matthew chapter 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables in front of you. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, you're free to take that home with you as well. And it's also going to be on the screen behind me. We're going to be in Matthew 6, and we're going to start in verse 19. And we're just going to go through this piece by piece. I'm not going to read the entire passage all at once, so we'll go through the choices one by one. 
So Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, here's what Jesus says. This is the word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this is pretty simple logic that Jesus is giving us here. He's giving us a choice and he's giving a reason why we should lay up treasure in heaven and not treasure on earth. And the logic is pretty simple. Treasure on heaven will last. Treasure in heaven will last. Treasure on earth will not. Now, if you were about to invest like your life savings, a ton of money into a business venture, and I happen to have insider knowledge that that business venture was a scam, would you want me to tell you? No? Nope? Yes? Of course you would, right? Well, you're welcome. I'm about to tell you. Don't invest your, your time and your money and your treasure on earth. It's a scam. It's a scam. It won't last. Jesus tells us why. He says that moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. So the, the moth, that, that kind of represents nature's corrosion. The rust represents time's corrosion. And thieves represent humanity's corrosion. So if it's not people that, that take what's precious to you or that destroy what's precious, precious to you, then nature's going to get it. Nature's going to take its course. And if it's not nature, nature then it's time. Time's going to take its course. But one way or another, anything on this earth, any treasure that you place on this earth is not going to last. It's fool's gold. Like I said earlier, earthly treasure doesn't just have to be stuff. It can be relationships. I mean, people aren't going to last forever. Like even who you marry, like one of you is going to pass away first, right? It's going to happen. A goal. You know, if your goal is to be some superior athlete, you're not promised that your body's going to keep on working the way that it always did. I've been dealing with, for the past year, learning to cope with a new normal for my life because my back is slowly just getting worse. I can't do the things that I used to do, and that's been hard for me to accept. And I'll just be completely honest with you guys, it's because, honestly, part of it's because I've, I've found part of my identity in my athleticism. And in the way I look, that's just full disclosure for me. And God is, is weaning me off of that. He's stripping that away from me, right? And so whether you're 32 or whether it's, you're 52, when that starts to happen to you, it will happen. Can I get an amen from some of you? It's going to happen, right? Right? It's not going to last forever, no matter what it is. Uh, Jim Elliott, he was a missionary to Ecuador, and he gave his life to reaching people that had never heard the gospel, to unreached people groups. And he was taking the gospel to one of the most dangerous tribes in South America, the Alcas. And he died uh, bringing the gospel to them. He died while he was pleading for them, uh, trying to tell them that he was there uh, to help them and because he loved them and he wanted to share the good news about Jesus while they speared him to death. Uh, but shortly before uh, he died as a young man, Jim Elliott said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott understood Matthew 6, 19 to 21. He understood that treasure on heaven 
is going to last forever and he can't lose it. And that it's foolish to store up treasure on earth, even your own life, even to place your trust in your own life. What, what is treasure in heaven? What is it that you cannot lose? Like, what exactly is that? Well, when I think about treasure and what, what God could give us, what kind of treasure God could give us, well, since God is the, the creator of the entire universe and all things are created by him and for him and through him and there's nothing greater than God, it makes sense that God could not possibly give us a gift greater than himself. So the, what's heavenly treasure? Well, first and, first and foremost, it's a relationship with God. It's, it's being united with him because we were separated from him by our sin and because of the death of of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us on the cross and his resurrection, we can now be united with God. We can have a new relationship with him. So that's the first part of what it looks like to have treasure in heaven. That can't be taken away from you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. You are sealed. Neither heights nor depths nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things below. Nothing in all creation could ever separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Treasure is also eternal life. That's pretty good news. Jesus said in, in John 8.51, Whoever believes in me will never taste death. John 11.25, he says, Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Eternal life cannot be lost. And there's also an inheritance. The Bible talks about an inheritance. That, that because Jesus has, has conquered and he's overcome sin and he's overcome death, that all things belong to him and he's making all things new. And because we are adopted into God's family, we are co-heirs with Christ is what Romans chapter 8 says. Uh, 1 Peter 1 says that, that there is an inheritance being kept for us in heaven that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And it's being kept for you. Who's keeping it? God's keeping it. Who can take it out of God's hands? Nobody. It's kept. That's treasure in heaven that you cannot lose. So how do you know what you treasure though? How do you know what you treasure? Well, verse 21, Jesus tells us, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you, you want to know where your treasure is? Well, where's your heart? When the Bible talks about the heart, it just means the control center of your life, basically. So your heart is your, your will, your desires, your, your mind, your emotions. It's what you find yourself thinking about Whenever you're just kind of daydreaming, it's what your mind gravitates towards. That's where your heart is focused. So if you want to know where your heart is, just ask yourself, what do, what do you daydream about? What are your greatest fears? What, what's, what's the thing or the, or the relationship with the person that, that you're, you're afraid that if I lost this thing, I don't know if I could continue to keep going, to exist? What makes you angry? What, what makes you defensive and, 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 get, and get kind of, you know, furious when that thing gets messed with or threatened? Where do you spend your time? What about your thought life? What do you find yourself thinking about all the time? Where do your thoughts gravitate towards? Where's your money going? You want to know, you want to have a, do a humbling exercise? I did this this week. If you want a humbling exercise, go home and get onto your online banking and go look up a review of your last 30 days of debit purchases and go see where's your money going. Seriously. You want to know where your heart is? Go look at the last 30 days of purchases that you've made, and it'll, it'll, it'll give you a lot of hints, right? And it's a good thing, though. It, we don't want to deceive ourselves about this, guys. We want to know, really, like, where is my heart, right? We want to know. So 
if you do that, or, or maybe you're even sitting here this morning right now and you're, and you're going, you know, man, I, I, I kind of know, Jared, that, that there are some things that I treasure here on earth. I, I do know that there's some stuff like that, but I want to treasure God more, but it's hard. I, I don't know how. Well, at this point, what a lot of people do and what a lot of Christians will try to do is they will think, well, I, I need to stop treasuring this thing because I know this isn't what God wants me to give my life to and focus on, so I'm just going to suppress my desire. So maybe, for example, maybe it's uh, a desire to be married. You want to get married so badly, right? And so, so your instinct is going to be to go, I just have to stop thinking about it. I've got to resist it. I've got to say no. I'm just going to shut it out and block it off and try to think about something else. But here's the deal. That's not what Jesus is telling us to do in this passage. You know what, you know what worldview that actually fits better into than Christianity? Buddhism, right? Buddhism says suppress your desires, right? Just don't desire anything. That's how you reach enlightenment. We're not trying to reach enlightenment. Jesus, Buddhism says remove desire. Jesus says redirect desire. Okay? We're not removing desire. We're redirecting desire. Jesus does not want you to get to heaven by making yourself miserable and denying yourself all pleasure. No, no. That's not who Jesus is. That's not who God is. He does not want you to be miserable to get into heaven. No, he is inviting you to come and drink deeply of him. There's a, a Greek mythological tale about uh, Ulysses and Jason. They were sailors, uh, and they both had to sail past the island of the sirens. And the sirens were these creatures that, that sang this extremely beautiful song. And, uh, and, and it was so beautiful that they were, it was irresistible and the sirens were on an island that, was, that had a rocky coast. And so uh, every time sailors would sail by, they would be drawn toward the song of the sirens. And they would steer their ship towards the island and they would run up upon the rocks and crash to their deaths. And so this was well known. And so everybody knew the problem of the song of the sirens. But so Ulysses knew he was about to sail past, but he really wanted to hear the song of the sirens. But he also didn't want to die. He didn't want to run up on the rock, so he came up with a plan. As the pilot of the ship, he had his shipmates lash him to the mast and tie him as tight as he could. And he told them, no matter how much I beg, no matter how loud I scream, no matter what I threaten, don't untie me. Keep me here. And they sailed past, and Ulysses was, was thrashing and demanding and threatening and cursing and, and, and just, please, just let me get out because he wanted to steer past. Jason, on the other hand, was in a separate ship, and Jason sailed past. And as they began to hear the song of the sirens, and, and, and the, the, the temptation became irresistible, a man came up on the deck of Jason's ship, a man who began to play a harp. And he began to play so beautifully that it was far more beautiful than the song of the sirens. And, and in fact, he played so beautifully that it made the song of the sirens sound completely undesirable. Like, like it, it made it sound like nails on a chalkboard. That's how sweet the music from the harp was. You can deal with sin and temptation like Ulysses or like Jason. A lot of Christians try to deal with it like Ulysses. See, they really, they want the sin, but they know they're not supposed to go there. They know it's bad, so they lash themselves to the mast of the ship. And it's torture, and they hate it. They hate it. It's a miserable existence. And you know what happens to a lot of them? Eventually, a lot of them break free, 
from the mast of that ship anyways, and they dive in that ocean, and they swim as fast as they can for the sirens, and they depart from the faith. And you look up a few years later, and they're no longer walking with the Lord. Why? Because they were never depending upon the Spirit of God in the first place. They didn't love Jesus. They were trying to keep themselves from sin by their own willpower, but they all along they loved sin. What God wants us to do is He wants us to hear a better song. Jesus is so much better, so much greater than any treasure you could ever possibly encounter on this earth. Jesus says in John 7.37, He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is not telling you to be miserable and to suppress desires. He's inviting you to come and drink deeply. Be satisfied. I want you to be filled. I want you to overflow with joy. I want you to drink. I don't want you to starve yourself. I want you to drink. Like the, the par- Jesus tells the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. The man is walking through the field and he stumbles upon some treasure And in his joy, he goes and he sells everything that he has so he can go and buy that field. To everybody else who's looking at that field, that field seems worthless. Why would you do that? Why would you sell all of your stuff to go buy some random field? But he knows something that they don't know. He knows that treasure is in that field. So now to him, that field, the value of that field far surpasses anything else in his life. And he's willing to leave it all behind. That's what it looks like to have what Thomas Watson would call the expulsive power of a new affection, right? It's not suppressing old affections. It's finding a new and a better affection, something that's more desirable than the things that once tempted us. Choose temporary treasure or choose timeless treasure over temporary treasure. Learn to see Jesus as all surpassing and all valuable. All right. Second choice you've got to make, you've got to make a choice between greed and generosity. Matthew 6, 22 to 24, let's read that. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So when Jesus talks about the good eye and the bad eye, he kind of uses a a cryptic uh, analogy here followed by a a very blunt choice that we have. Serve God or serve money. One or the other. You can't do both. And um, when when Jesus talks about the good eye and the bad eye, what he's referring to is uh, the good eye is uh, having a right relationship to stuff. It's seeing material possessions the way that they're meant to be seen, okay? And a bad eye is having a wrong relationship with material possessions. It's seeing material possessions and putting them, asking material possessions to do things that they were never meant to do, right? Making material stuff your treasure instead of making Jesus your treasure, right? That's why when Jesus says, if, if you have a good eye, your whole body will be full of light, All Jesus is saying there when your body's full of light is he's saying that life will come together and make sense for you. You'll be on the right track. You won't be going astray because you'll be, Jesus is in his rightful place as king and everything else falls underneath him. That's what it means to have a good eye, okay? But if you've got a bad eye, if Jesus is not in his rightful place and you've got other stuff on top, 
You got other stuff in there? It honestly doesn't matter what you do. Your whole body's going to be full of darkness. You're going to be groping around in the dark, and you're going to be lost in the sauce, okay? So if you don't want to be lost in the sauce, have a good eye. Jesus needs to be at the top. And then Jesus tells us, he says, you can serve God or you can serve money. You're either serving money as your God or you're serving God with your money. And by the way, the word here for money is, uh, it's the word mammon, which basically means property or stuff, possessions. So it's not just cash, it's material things. Now, I know that a lot of us think, well, this, you know, I'm, money's not really a problem. If you notice, like, people talk about a lot how they have problems, you know, people admit sometimes, well, I've got problems with lust or I've got problems with anger, but you really never hear people admit that they have a problem with greed, do you? You don't have a problem with greed. We always say, oh, those rich guys over there, they got a problem with greed. It's the capital, capitalists. It's the, you know, whatever. You know, the, the people over there, the, the CEOs, they're the greedy ones. And we never look at ourselves and ask ourselves, well, hold on a second. Do I have some greed in my life? You know, statistics say we're not as generous as we think we are. And I'm talking about Christians when I say we. Um, 24% of evangelical Christians in Canada, only 24% of evangelical Christians in Canada tithe on a regular basis. So a quarter of Christian side. That's actually pretty good compared to other denominations. Uh, it's about double the size of the next one down. 9% of people who claim to be born-again Christians tithe. 9% give. And then the average Christian that does give gives 2.5% of their income. That's, that's pretty low relatively on the scale. Not only do we... Um, not only do we not give, not only do the statistics say we're not very generous, but statistics also say we hoard a lot of stuff. Get this, this blew me away. Did you know that the storage industry in the United States of America, and no Canada, you're not off the hook because you're not far behind, but in the United States of America, the storage industry is a $38 billion a year industry. We spend $38 billion trying to find places to put stuff we don't need. Now, I'm not saying I'm like anti-storage facility and that you should never have one and you're in sin if you are. I'm not saying that, okay? I know there's reasons for it sometimes. Like, I get that. I get that. Sometimes you're moving or, or you know, whatever. I don't know, okay? But what I'm saying is, is that it tells a tale about us as a society. Did you know the average, there are not, there's nine square feet of storage space for every person in America. Nine feet for every person, for 300 million people. So do the math. Nine times 300 million. That's how many square feet of storage space there is. That's amazing. Did you know that what we could do with $38 billion, by the way? Did you know that $38 billion could feed the entire world for five years? Could literally end world hunger. And it could solve the clean water crisis. There would not be a single person that would have to worry about finding clean water anymore. If we just got rid of our storage facilities. If we just got rid of our stuff that we don't even need. Jesus tells a parable about this in Luke 12, 16 to 21. He, he talks about how there's a man and uh, he's, he's, he's growing in wealth and, and he begins to, to acquire more stuff. And um, he kind of, I think it's on the screen behind me, and, and uh, he has a conversation with himself, basically. I always thought it was funny. Uh, verse 17 says, he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there... I will store all my grains and goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, 
You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I mean, it's kind of hard not to see our society in the, in the place of the rich fool, right? I'm not saying everybody, every single individual in our society is like this, but I'm saying corporately as a whole, it's kind of us, isn't it, right? We want more. Give me more. I need more stuff. I need the newer cell phone. I need a bigger house. I need a better yard. I need a nicer car. I need better shoes, right? More, more, more. What does God say about giving? Well, a few things. First of all, God says that we should give because He gave. We should give because He gave. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And Paul, Paul is writing to uh, the Corinthians, and he is encouraging them uh, to, to give because there's a famine in Jerusalem and they need help. And he's using the example of the Macedonians, and then he points to Jesus' example. And here's what he says. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's a verse that you can spend some time meditating on later today. That's amazing. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. What was Jesus' riches? Well, he was in heaven with the Father. He was in glory reigning and ruling over all creation. And what did he do? He left that behind. And he was born as a baby in a stable with animals to a poor family, a family of carpenters. And he grew up a normal life. And throughout his ministry, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. That's what he said. Didn't even have a home, didn't have possessions. And he got to the end of his life and he died with nothing. Naked, upon a cross, his only possessions were his cloak and soldiers cast lots for them and gambled for them below him while he suffered to breathe. He struggled to breathe on the cross. And he did that for you. But you see, more than that, not only did he become poor poor materially, he became poor because he took on our sin debt. He took on all the debt that we owed for our sin on that cross and he paid it by his blood. And then in exchange... He gives you his righteousness, the riches of his righteousness. He gives you the full inheritance that now belongs to him because the lamb has overcome. That's a really good deal. Amen? Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Through his poverty you might become rich. So if God would be so rich towards us, how could we be stingy and greedy and not be rich towards others? Right? We should also, the Bible also says we need to give cheerfully, not dutifully. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, the next chapter, he says, don't give under compulsion. Don't give because you have to. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. I read an article in the Huffington Post, uh, Canada's version of the Huffington Post this week, and uh, the article was basically centered around an interview of a guy who uh, claimed, he said he was a Christian, and he was on a campaign against tithing in the church, basically. He was, he was angry at the churches because, because they would d- dare to collect tithes, and he pointed back to his experience. He had a bad experience. Now, I don't know whether or not this, how true this is or whatever, but he claimed that a pastor had told him that he had to tithe to be a good Christian. Okay? Now, if 
the pastor told him that, and that's just wrong, and he's missing the point. But here, I want you to listen to this man's quote. Here's what he said in the article. He said, I tithed and I tithed, but I didn't get any financial blessings. I did not get off of government assistance. I did not get a job. I did not get a car, and I did not get a better apartment. Friends, that's what we call dutiful giving. That's not cheerful giving. That's not what God wants. Like, if that's your attitude towards giving, then just don't give. Like, honestly, like, don't give. We're supposed to give out of the overflow, out of, out of a heart of gratitude, because we recognize all that God has given us. If your motivation to give is selfish, because you're, you, you want God to kind of get you back on the other side, then money is your God. God is not your God. Money is your God. We, we give because he gave, and then we give to advance local and global missions. That's, that's why we give. We give to advance. Did you know that, um, I, I told you that stat earlier, about 24% of evangelicals tithe. Did you know that if all evangelical Christians begin to tithe, just 10%, which is kind of, and, and I don't have time to get into the, we're not going to get too much into tithing here, and what's the right amount, what's the wrong amount. I'll just say this, the right amount is give cheerfully and sacrificially. That's what the New Testament tells us. So if it doesn't, I mean, if it doesn't really cost you anything, then is, are you really giving from the heart, right? But you also shouldn't, like, give so much that you literally can't, you know, like, pay your bills and stuff like that either, right? But if all Christians, if all evangelical Christians were to tithe just 10%, you know that that would result in $165 billion annually? And you know what we could do with $165 billion? Well, we could end world hunger for the next five years. We could cure all preventable diseases. We could provide clean water for the entire world. We could uh, supply global missions, missionaries, enough missionaries to go to every single unreached people group so that every single person on the entire planet would be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we would still have $100 billion left over to continue to do other missions and outreach things. And here at Fellowship Oshawa, giving, that's what you're giving towards when you give here. Right, we, we support local and we support global missions. Locally, we do things like a couple of weeks ago, we had our, uh, we had our uh, back-to-school supply giveaway. We were able to give out a ton, a ton of school supplies. 225 kids, 400 total people came through, and they were able to get supplied up with school supplies for the year. And they were able to be prayed for, and, and, and many gospel conversations were had. Next month, we're going to be going to Utah, our first mission trip. We're going to the, uh, the most unreached city in the entire United States of America. 0.6% of Ogden, Utah are Christians. 0.6. There's a period in front of the six. It's the most lost place in all of the United States of America, and we get to send a team. That's because of your giving, right? We also get to support church planting. Because of your giving, we were able to give James Greaves, who uh, Fellowship Bowmanville just had their first preview service last Sunday, and we were able to give them a large financial gift so that they could purchase some of the sound equipment that they needed to be able to start another new church in the Durham region. And Lord willing, we're going to start many, many more. Right? That's why we give, guys, because we want to see the gospel go forth. We want to see lives change. We believe that Jesus loves the Schwa. We believe that Jesus loves the Durham region. All right, we give to advance local and global missions. Lastly, we have a choice between temporary treasure or timeless treasure, greed or generosity, and then we have a choice between fear or faith. 
Look at verse 25 through 34. I'm just going to read part of it. I'm going to read verse 25 and then skip down to 33. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Let's, um, let's skip down to verse 32. He says, The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. Anybody know what the most highlighted verse in the Bible app was last year? Want to take a guess? No, but that was a good, I mean, I kind of set you up for the wrong answer, I'm sorry. No, it's not one of these verses. It's Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which says, don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right? The verse that was highlighted more than any other verse in the Bible was a verse about anxiety, a verse about worrying. I want you to pay attention to the word therefore in verse 25. If you were at the discipleship live yesterday, you should have already picked up on that, right? If you see the word therefore, we need to figure out what it's there for, right? So that word therefore connects what Jesus is saying here with the previous five verses. It's connecting what Jesus is saying about anxiety with what Jesus said about treasure on earth and treasure in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that if your treasure is in heaven, therefore you don't have to be anxious because you can't lose it. But if your treasure is in earth, if you, if you can lose your treasure, you're always going to be anxious no matter what. If your hope is in something that you have a chance of losing, whether it's your spouse whether it's your kids, whether it's your car, whether it's your savings, whether it's your prospect of getting married, if you can lose it, you will have anxiety in your life. The only way, the only way to get rid of worry and anxiety and fear is to put your treasure where you can't lose it. And that's in heaven. Your anxiety is tied to your affections. Your worries are tied to what you worship. There was a a study that was recently done and two control groups were studied. The first group of patients was told that they were going to receive 20 strong shocks, which I wouldn't be a huge fan of that, but that's what they were told. The second group was told they were going to receive 17 mild shocks and three strong shocks, but the catch is they wouldn't know when the strong shocks were coming. And they wanted to do the study to figure out which group suffered from more from higher anxiety. And so they measured that by measuring their heart rate, their perspiration levels, and the conclusion found that the second group with the 17 mild shocks and the three strong shocks, overwhelmingly had higher heart rates and more perspiration. Their their anxiety levels were through the roof compared to the other group. Why? Because it's uncertainty that causes the anxiety, not the circumstances. It's the not knowing. So what does that tell you? Getting more money is not going to make your anxiety go away. About your bank account. Certainty is what makes it go away. And the only way you can be certain about money is if you trust God more than money. If you trust Him. There's only one thing that's certain in life, guys. The only thing that's certain is the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Matthew 6, 33. 
What's the kingdom of God? I love how uh, my friend Jeff Christofferson says it. Jeff says, the kingdom of God is what happens when Jesus gets his way. The kingdom of God is what happens when Jesus gets his way. Let me ask you, is Jesus getting his way in your life? If not, could it be that that's because, that, that that's the reason that you're struggling with anxiety and worry and fear? What area of your life is Jesus not getting his way? You know, I was talking with Jen uh, earlier this week. You know what, what's fascinating you start to think about? There is no other religion that gives you assurance of salvation besides Christianity. If you start to study cults, brand, cults that have branched off of Christianity, you'll notice there's one thing in common with all of them. They discard the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, and they add some sort of, you've, but you've got to do this and this and this. You've got to do works. It's never enough. There's always a carrot being dangled in front of you. You never know for sure if you're going to make it to the highest level of heaven. You never know for sure if you're going to make it to nirvana. You never know for sure whether God's going to let you in. Every single religion says that. Why is that? Because Satan's the accuser, guys. Satan doesn't want you to rest. Satan doesn't want you to be certain of your standing with God. Satan wants you to feel guilty. Satan wants you to, to worry. Satan wants you to fear. So of course he's going he's gonna to give all these lies and he's going to twist and distort Christianity with cults and other false religions. God doesn't want you to have to worry or wonder what's going to happen. He wants you to have assurance. And the reason we can have assurance is because of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the promised return of Jesus Christ. We have assurance that our debt has been paid for because Jesus already paid it on the cross. We have assurance that we're going to have eternal life because he rose from the grave. He's alive. And he's promised that he's coming back, and we know that he is. And when he comes back, he's coming back for everybody who is looking forward to his appearing. So my question for you today is what are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a Christian. Maybe you've gone to church before. You'd say you're a Christian, but you know you haven't been following Jesus. Well, you have a choice to make this morning. You have a choice to either receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior or to reject Him. There's no fence straddling, though. You can't straddle the fence. I had a conversation on Friday with two uh, young guys, me and Jordan met when we were out uh, just in the middle of Oshawa. I got to share my testimony with them in the gospel. And at the end, um, towards the end, uh, this young guy said to me, he looked at me and he said, well, something like, well, I'm glad that you found something that, that works for you. I'm proud of you, basically. Like, I'm glad you found something that works for you. And, and, and it so frustrates me when people say that because I, I just, I look at him and I, and I think to myself, man, it's not about what works. It's about what's true, <laughs> If this is true, it doesn't matter whether you think it works or not. You've got to either decide if you're going to receive Jesus as Lord or you're going to reject him. You have a choice this morning. You can't choose a third option. There are no third options. You will either submit and surrender to him and acknowledge that, it is, that you can only be saved by faith in his name or you're going to say no to him. By, by, by saying not right now, you're saying no. And I would just encourage you, don't make that foolish decision. Don't make that business deal. It's a scam. Store up treasure in heaven. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus, you may have some choices to make. To invest in temporary treasure or timeless treasure. Remember the words of Jesus, John 7, 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come to Jesus and drink. Maybe you need to make a choice between being greedy and allowing stuff to be your master or being generous and being free. God loves a cheerful giver. Maybe you need to take that first step of faith and you need to start giving for the first time. Or maybe you need to start giving sacrificially for the first time. You know, if God's telling you. Or maybe you need to make a choice between clinging to control and being anxious or letting God have control and having faith. Whatever it is, my prayer for you this morning is that you will see that it's a no-brainer decision to lay up treasure in heaven. Jesus is better. He said, I am meek and gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find rest and you'll find assurance in him.